listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. Um, it's good to be with you this morning on Palm Sunday. Um, my name's Cole. I'm one of the pastors here. If you, if you haven't met me yet, um, I, I would love to meet you after the gathering and, and say hello. Um, but it's an honor to be able to preach the truth from God's word uh, this Palm Sunday, which is, it's the first day of Holy Week, which is the week leading up to Easter Sunday, in which the church, we really lean into remembering kind of day by day the final week of Jesus's life prior to his resurrection, which is really the final week of a former world in which God had not yet taken the sins of the world upon him in sacrificial death, a world in which God had not yet conquered death through victorious resurrection. It's a world that none of us have ever fully experienced. We, we live in a, a totally different world than the one that, that we read about in Luke 19. In Luke 19, on, on Palm Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday because uh, in, in certain accounts of, of this event, there's people throwing palm branches and waving palm branches before the Lord as he comes into Jerusalem being hailed as a king. But what we're remembering is this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, a, a, an entry that had been expected since Luke chapter 9 when Jesus famously set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And so as we prepare to see Jesus enter into this, this climactic end to his earthly ministry, let's pray and, and prepare our hearts to see what the Lord might have for us in that. Father, we, uh, we come to you um, in the midst of our our normal lives and schedules with all of the, the monotony or chaos that that creates. Um, and many of us, if not all of us, have probably not stopped to situate our hearts and our minds in, in the things which we are about to observe this week. We probably don't realize the, the momentum and the excitement even built up in the text that we're going to read this morning. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would, you would draw us into the drama of your passion, that you would draw us into the, the fullness of, of what you're revealing to us, that we might be a people forever changed by you, that we would see you clearly and worship you faithfully. Would you reveal the beauty of your son to us? even to those of us who maybe have never fully seen it and trusted in it, would you reveal it to us this week and even this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, arguably Montana's greatest author, Norman McLean, once wrote these words. He said, at sunrise, everything is luminous, but not clear. At sunrise, everything is luminous, but not clear. And in terms of the coming of God's kingdom, Luke 19 occurs at a metaphorical or eschatological sunrise. There's light 
abounding. There's, there's glory in what's going on. Uh, events and people, especially this man Jesus, seem to be glowing with expectation and excitement. There, there's even a romance about it. New things are coming and, and people are aware of this. But what exactly those new things are is yet unclear. Like at sunrise when things are luminous but not clear. See, five days before Jesus was crucified as a criminal, he entered into Jerusalem being hailed by a great multitude of people as a source of salvation, as a king. This entry into the city has often been called throughout church history as the triumphal entry, which much like Good Friday is a loaded and beautiful way of understanding the ministry of Jesus. There's some irony in it. He came into a city that five days later he was hung outside of to die, and we call it triumph. He came in riding on the humble colt of a donkey, and we call it triumph. He came in surrounded by people who misunderstood him, some who disdained him, many were confused by him, and we call this triumph. And it was it was both in an outward sense and in a true reality sense. In an outward sense, it was this triumphal entry of a prophet coming into the most important city of the world at that time, a city that was under foreign occupation, a city crying out for a prophet, a leader, a savior, a redeemer, and he's being followed by these masses, and, and they're throwing their cloaks before him, crying out for salvation, while his enemies looked on with disgust feared that they wouldn't be able to stop the momentum that this would-be king had grown. That's triumphal. It's cinematic, really. A king coming in to reclaim his people's heritage and his holy city in the name of divine justice and covenant promises, this is certainly triumphal. Just hear the, the last few verses of the text that Victorious, Victoria read for us this morning. It says, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So just picture this. He's, he's on the Mount of Olives, this, this mountain outside the city of Jerusalem from which you could see the temple and, and, and the city of God. This mountain that had so much significance for the people of God in their history. And here he comes down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a giant parade coming into the city. It, it wasn't planned by, by some organizer. It's just an organic thing that happened because Jesus is coming to the city on the week of Passover. So they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, Maybe my favorite words of Jesus in all of the Gospels. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So, so here we get to a core about understanding who Jesus is. He's so praiseworthy. 
He's so awesome, so majestic and glorious that if no human being had the boldness or the faith or the gumption to praise him, then the rocks and the trees and the rivers would start singing. And so this morning, as we consider the coming of our Lord, my question for you is this. Will you praise him or will you let the stones do your singing for you? See, the triumphal entry is, it's not primarily about the week to come. It's not primarily about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, even though that was a, a faithful moment here in Luke, 1, in Luke 19. It's a, a faithful moment that would lead to his arrest and crucifixion, upon which all of our hopes for forgiveness and salvation hinge. And, and let's be clear, that's why he came into Jerusalem that day. He, he didn't come in order to take over the temple and become the new high priest, though he did. He didn't come in order to take the sovereign authority from Caesar and Herod to become an earthly ruler, though he did become a king. He came to Jerusalem to die. And in his death, he would destroy the temple and raise up a new and better one. He would topple kingdoms and kings he would put death to death. He would bear the sin and shame of all the world. But the account of the triumphal entry is about expectation more than it is about arrival. It's about things longed for and things to come. It's in some ways the dawn of the kingdom, the sunrise, fully luminous and yet leaving things unclear until a future moment. But like the unfocused figures of trees and structures in morning's first light, we know that it won't be long until all comes into focus and everything is made clear because he has now come into the city which he had set his face toward. See, since Adam and Eve were sent to live in the land east of Eden, there's been hope for a day like the one people were witnessing in Luke 19. A promise that not only mankind in his messy and sinful state would be redeemed, but that all of creation would join in that redemption. The raging waters stilled, the fractured stones given restoration, the parched deserts made oases that blossom. Mankind longed and creation groaned for something better, something new. Many of you are still longing. In the dark of night, there were hopes of the morning's renewal. And God promised these things. He gave portraits of the things to come. He promised a son who would crush the lying serpent. He promised a king who would reign forever with love and justice. He promised a land that would be flowing with milk and honey, whose enemies would be stayed on every side forevermore. He promised that dry bones even would rise up and put on flesh and follow in faithful procession of praise after the Lord their God. He promised that disease would be ended, that mountains would be moved, and that the most ferocious predators would become friends of the most helpless sheep in the herd. So when in the Early parts of the first century, a man came along who healed the sick, 
who raised the dead, who forgave sins as one with authority, who taught the scriptures unlike any prophet had ever done before him. People began to wonder if the sun had finally begun to peek over the horizon and to look kindly on a people and on a wilderness in need of something to hope in. So while the sunrise may not bring clarity, none who have witnessed it have ever been disappointed by its beauty or the expectation that it brings. The problem with the metaphorical sunrise of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is that on this particular day that we read about in Luke 19, many of his observers thought it to be midday. To see what I mean, let's go back to the end of Jesus' conversation with Zacchaeus from last week. In Luke 19, verses 9 through 14, it says, And Jesus said to him, to Zacchaeus, he says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And they heard these things. And as they did, he proceeded to tell a parable Hear this, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus' disciples, they didn't understand what Jesus was going to do. They saw that he was covered in light and they loved the light. They, They wanted to be a part of it, but things weren't yet clear. They thought that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he was coming to establish the kingdom in full, to be the true king of an earthly kingdom, to overthrow Rome and, and all of Israel's adversaries, to restore proper temple worship. And so trying to prepare them for what was actually coming, he told them this parable. It says in verses 12 through 27, which we'll we'll kind of stop throughout to make comment on. It says, he said, therefore, in a parable, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas, which is a currency, and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And so so in this parable, Jesus is presenting himself to be the noble man. And the far country he went into is related to his incarnation into the flesh to come from heaven to earth. He left heaven to come to earth to receive a kingdom. And then, as the parable says, he would draw away for a while, leave his servants to do business on his behalf, and then he would return again. In the meantime, he gives his servants the work of making his kingdom to expand, to grow, to prosper. He relates the ministry of the gospel that he gives to his disciples to the labor of business, not because it's an endeavor of riches, but because the faithfulness of his people will yield multiplying returns. Yet the citizens of the earth hated him and disdained the prospect of his kingship. It is these verses which Jesus is using to tell his disciples about the week to come. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, yes, to receive a kingdom, but then he will leave and wait to return. He will leave his disciples to carry out his business. He will depart from them 
And he will depart from them in part because he is hated by the citizenship. His kingship is rejected, which will lead to his crucifixion. So the disciples thought that the kingdom would appear all at once. And now they're being told that Jesus is inviting them into the process of seeing it come over time. But but they still don't get it. It's clear from the events that follow that that they still don't quite get what he's telling them. But let's keep following in the parable. It says, when the nobleman returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minus more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money into the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it at interest. Now today's text and sermon isn't primarily about this parable. So I'll I'll leave a lot unsaid. But the point is this, that Jesus is going to leave at the end of the week, which we're about to, to observe. And then one day he will come to return to receive his kingdom in the future. And for those who have been faithful with the gifts that he has entrusted them with, Jesus will be deeply pleased upon his return. He will give them an inheritance in his kingdom beyond what they could imagine. And then there's this man in the parable who did nothing with what he was given. And he did nothing because he didn't really know Jesus at all. Like that's the problem with this man. He thought Jesus to be severe and ruthless, even unjust, thinking that no matter what he did, he would disappoint this king. And so in in cowardice and in fear, he hid the gift and went about on his own business. This is a warning to Jesus' disciples in that day and a warning to us. We may not fully understand what it is that God is doing, but if we respond to him because we're afraid of disappointing him or we're afraid that he will treat us ruthlessly and unjustly, then we've missed the point of who he is altogether. This is a God who has come down to us to be with us, to speak peace to us, to make forgiveness for us, to create salvation for us, to invite us into his kingdom, to be stewards of it. This is not a cruel taskmaster. This is a loving and heavenly friend. He doesn't take what is not his, as the unfaithful servant claimed. Instead, he gives to us what is not rightfully ours. The mina which was squandered was not the servants to hide, but it was the kings to invest. And and so for those of you who have trusted in Christ, your life is not your own. And one day, you will meet our king upon his return. 
And he'll see what you've done with this life that he's graciously given to you. This life that you didn't deserve. And he'll see what you've done with it. And so don't hide the grace you've been given under a handkerchief. Put it into the economy of a world that's desperately in need of what our king has to offer. And watch it multiply into more and more people being radically transformed by the love of God, the forgiveness of a savior. The parable continues. It goes like this. It says, and the nobleman said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. Jesus says, or the nobleman says, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These are the kinds of verses in the ministry of Jesus that prevent us from ever believing that he was just a good moral teacher or simply a kind friend to the poor and to the lonely. One day, his kingdom will come in full, and for those who are his willing and joyful subjects, they will inherit the fullness of what he has to offer. And for those who have squandered the grace proclaimed to them, they will be made poor. And for those who do not want him to rule over them, they will be brought before him and put to death in judgment. This is not a complicated parable. There is no place for treason in the kingdom of God. And so as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey being hailed by a multitude, some hated him and disdained that he would be worshiped as a king. Like those who in the end are brought before him for the slaughter. Let's revisit that passage in verses 37 through 40. It says, as he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, even in the luminous yet unclear light of first morning, people saw that Jesus was special. And not just special, they saw that he was the king they'd been longing for. He had begun to show them what the world could be like when the fullness of God's grace came to them. They saw that the blind began to see, the lame began to walk, deaf people started hearing, and dead people were raised. Sinners were forgiven, and so they hailed him. They hailed him as king, as the one who had come in the name of Yahweh himself, the one who would bring the peace of heaven to earth. They joined the pleas of all their ancestors and joyfully saw the things of God beginning to come to pass among them. The creation groaned as well. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that all of creation groans with eager longing for the revealing of God's reconciling adoption of his people until now. And at that moment when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, you might imagine that the rocks and the trees and the birds of the air and the creeping things were looking on too. 
that if the people hadn't been shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you would have heard birds singing unlike they had ever before. Trees rustling unlike they ever had before. You have to imagine that the bowels of the earth began to tremble, and indeed they did until five days later, upon his dying breath, the earth quaked. The sun blushed and went dim. Glory was coming to his people, and the Pharisees hated it. So Jesus told them, you don't get it. If they were silent, the stones would cry out. And as beautiful a thing to say that is, as as poetic as it is, church, I, I don't want you to hear that this was a metaphor given to Jesus, given by Jesus. Jesus wasn't being cute with the Pharisees. He wasn't giving them a poem to show them how wonderful he was. He was saying literally, I'm the redeemer of the whole universe. I'm the king of everything. I'm the savior for all sinners and for a broken world. I'm the most glorious thing in the span of all universes, in the span of all eternity, and I will be praised. You cannot stop it. So you can join in. Or you can experience the fullness of judgment. But I tell you truthfully, if they were silent, the stones would be singing. See, the triumphal entry was a foreshadow for the second coming of our king. A more triumphal entry. When he returns to receive his kingdom in full. In that day, it will not be sunrise but instead the fullness of noonday unlike ever before when all will be made clear in the light of God's glory, a day in which we will no longer need the sun because God's glory will be so radiant. In that day, again, our king will ride in surrounded by a multitude being hailed as the savior of all things, the most lovely of all beings, and I hope you're a part of that multitude in that day. In that day, he won't be riding on a humble colt of a donkey. He will be on a white horse ready for war. In that day, he won't just be called the the son of David or a would-be Messiah, but instead he will be called faithful and true, marked by the words written upon his flesh, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, in Luke 19, he entered humbly. Humbly to be slain by the commands of the rulers and authorities. But when he comes again, he will do so in the fullness of majesty. The fullness of authority and dominion given to the God of life. And then he will gather the rulers and authorities who oppose him. And they will be slain upon his command. He has come into Jerusalem to make peace through the violent death that he will endure, to bring justice through the scandal of his sacrifice, to bring hope through being humiliated. Church, behold your king and lift up your voice to praise him. Behold him and throw your cloak before him. Cry out to him for salvation, for he is the blessed one who has come in the name of the Lord. And friends, whatever you do, Don't sit by and let the rocks do your singing for you. Instead, join in the song of all creation, a song of hope and victory, for our God has come to us. 
Let's pray.